Roxo Media House. A Signal 51 is police code for an investigation, a law enforcement proceeding that is a systemic and thorough attempt to learn the facts about a possible crime that is complex and whose facts and circumstances are generally hidden, at least initially, behind obstacles that can be coincidental and or man-made. Investigations methods are formal. I'm John Henry, a journalist, and my partner is Jake White, a retired Fort Worth police sergeant. Together, we examine the difficult cases of law enforcement, both in Fort Worth and around the region. This is Signal 51. The show is designed specifically for a more mature audience. Some of the content is graphic and is not intended for younger audiences. Episode 8 of the Signal 51 Chronicles. An abusive husband or a clever wife. The events inside the home on Lindenwood Drive, the night of November 11, 1945, weren't much in dispute. Doris Lee Bradshaw, 27, who went by Pat, shot dead her husband, George B. Bradshaw Jr., 32, in their bedroom that evening on Veterans Day. Her motive, however, became the source of intrigue inside a Fort Worth courtroom and two criminal trials in 1946, with one of the state's best criminal defense attorneys performing on stage. Was she a ruthless killer, a, quote, pistol-packing mama, who, quote, reveled in the carnival of high living and sought a financial death benefit, as prosecutors asserted, or a woman who defended herself against an abusive husband, as she and her defense attorney, W.P. McLean, contended? 24 jurors in two criminal cases brought against Doris Bradshaw had trouble deciding, too, on the charge of murder with malice. Doris and Army First Lieutenant George Bradshaw married in 1940 in Arizona. They lived in San Diego, California, Dayton, Ohio, where he was an Army airman during World War II and in Fort Worth twice. The first time was in 1943 when he was an employee of Convair, now Lockheed Martin, and moved back in 1945. The couple lived on Spanish Trail before moving into the house on Lindenwood. They had three children together, including two Doris brought with her from a previous marriage and a young boy, George III, the couple had together. Doris assured the financial stability of the family through an inheritance handed down from her grandmother. George, the son of a U.S. Navy captain in World War I, had worked in advertising sales in San Diego and planned to open an office in Fort Worth as an industrial engineer following the career path he established at Convair. Court testimony suggested he liked to drink, and he wasn't very good at it. Sunday, November 11th, Veterans Day, was a nice, cool fall day in Fort Worth. The temperature was in the low 50s, the skies were overcast. The city, like the rest of the country, continued to bask in the end of the war, while simultaneously repulsed on hearing of the horrors of what went on there. In Fort Worth the day before, three young children were playing with toy guns when one found a real one in the closet. A three-year-old was sent in serious condition to St. Joseph Hospital after being shot by a 22 caliber rifle. Meanwhile, at TCU, the Board of Trustees had approved a $2 million building expansion on the campus. The state of Texas's case against Doris Bradshaw would feature the best thing going in Texas as far as defense attorneys, William P. Wild Bill McLean. His one loss record in trials was legendary. 
McLean was racehorse Haynes on the biggest B-12 shot known to science. One of his best-known cases was recalled in a book titled Vengeance is Mine, the story of the Sneed murder trials. Hubris, jealousy, lust of power, greed, vanity, self-pity, delusion, hypocrisy. You name it, it was in play with the predictable Hindenburg-esque outcomes. The boy Sneed feud had all those self-destructive attributes spun like the most sophisticated spider web and this truth is stranger than fiction tome. Add in a heaping helping of a defense attorney who has anchored himself a spot in history as a man who would literally do and say anything to win for his client. In a courtroom, William P. Bill McLean II was every bit as exotic and eccentric and with as much flair as any character in the Tiger King. The notorious Colin Davis affair was small time compared with the feud involving three Texas panhandle families who, by way of circumstances, used Fort Worth as its climactic stage in January 1912. One of them, anyway. John Bill Sneed, Al Boyce Jr., and Lena Snyder all grew up together in and around Georgetown, Texas. Georgetown, of course, is just north of Austin. Their families were instrumental in the founding of Southwestern University in Georgetown, where all three attended. Only one of them, however, finished. That was, that was Bill Sneed, and from there he left for UT Law School which he also successfully completed. All three families moved to the Panhandle following the cattle and land business. As an aside, Carly Fiorina, the one-time presidential candidate and Ted Cruz's quote-unquote running mate in 2016, was a Sneed. Bill and Lena were married by then, while Al Boyce Jr. lived with his family down the street in Amarillo. Bill was on business quite a bit. You don't have to be well-read in primetime soaps or Fifty Shades to know where this is going. Lena and Al began a very hot love affair. Lots of steam. Author Bill Neal splendidly covers the tragedy that ensued in his book, Vengeance is Mine. I highly recommend it for those who are into that sort of thing. As part of his plan to punish his wife for this torrid affair, Bill, a disordered and sadistic personality as it was, who intended to punish everyone involved, with the sin that humiliated him, shipped Lena to the Arlington Heights Sanitarium in Fort Worth. He had her committed through a very dubious non-judicial process, claiming that she was, quote, morally insane. It was for that reason that Bill was in Fort Worth, checking Lena back into the hospital after she and Al had escaped to Winnipeg in Canada. It so happened that Al Boyce Sr., Al's father, who went by Colonel or Captain Boyce, was in Fort Worth at the same time lobbying the district attorney to drop charges that Bill had urged to be filed against Al Jr. in connection with the elopement, including stealing her jewelry. Bill also sought a federal charge of, quote, white slavery. Bill and Captain Boyce found themselves in the other's company at the Metropolitan Hotel, the hotel Winfield Scott had constructed, located near the site of the JFK Tribute at Main Street, a mere block from the soon-to-be-demolished Fort Worth Convention Center Arena. What happened was widely disputed. The state's best witness, Ed Throckmorton, son of the governor, died suspiciously before trial. But Bill mortally wounded Captain Boyce in the lobby, firing five bullets into the elderly man. The incident set off two sensational trials inside the Tarrant County Courthouse. In the end, Bill Sneed was twice acquitted in three murder trials. His first in Fort Worth ended in a mistrial. A juror or jurors were likely bribed. In between the end of that first trial and the second trial, 
Bill hunted down Al Boyce Jr. and killed him in Amarillo in September 1912. He won acquittal in Fort Worth for the second trial in the Captain Boyce murder and in Vernon on charges of killing Al Jr. Now, the craziest part of this story might be that despite it all, Bill and Lena remained married till death did them part in the 1960s. Bill never denied killing either man. His assets in getting away with murder were a bungling prosecution trying to play ball with the best, Bill McLean. Over the course of the entire two-year ordeal, McLean went 4-0. The mistrial, the two Sneed acquittals, plus the acquittal of Sneed's alleged accomplice in Amarillo. McLean was the son of William P. McLean. If the name W.P. McLean sounds familiar, it's because it is. McLean Middle School in Fort Worth is named in his honor. The father was a distinguished Texas statesman with two terms in the state legislature, one term as a U.S. congressman as well as one as a district judge. He was also a member of the state's first railroad commission, appointed by Governor Hogg. During Reconstruction, his state called on him to serve as part of the post-Civil War convention that wrote the state constitution of 1876, the one that we use today. I believe that constitution also allowed him to get back in the Union. He also fought on the side of the Confederacy. Let's just keep that between us. He moved to Fort Worth in 1893, where he was able to realize his dream of, quote, undisturbed practice of law. Another son, Jeff, then the county attorney, was murdered while taking part in a raid on a gambling house in 1907 in Fort Worth. A town in the Panhandle bears the McLean name. It's near Pampa and named for W.P. McLean I. Judge McLean assisted the defense in the Sneed trials as part of the firm McLean, Scott, and McLean. Walter Scott was the other partner. At his death at age 69 in 1941, Bill McLean, captain and quarterback of the University of Texas' first football team, has successfully defended 75 defendants accused of murder over the course of 35 years as a defense attorney. He was synonymous with the biggest murder cases across the Southwest. The tactics and things he would say during trial went beyond controversial. They would oftentimes make one wince. Reading them 100 years later certainly does. A good example was his representation of Earl Mayfield, the Democrat nominee for the U.S. Senate from Texas in 1922. Detractors challenged his eligibility, Mayfield's eligibility that is, because of filing deadlines and other technical issues. Mayfield, because he was a proponent of prohibition, was also considered the candidate of the Ku Klux Klan. Today, McLean's presentation in front of the jury would be considered vulgar and grounds for rebuke and likely disbarment. Was he a racist? Perhaps. But it also would not have been below McLean to use language simply because he knew it would appeal to the jury. He seemed not to recognize shame. McLean fought for his clients, and he did so with brass knuckles. Ethics seemed optional. Joining us now is a special guest to the Signal 51 Chronicles, Sean Ferkey, a real estate attorney who works for the Baker firm Fidelity National Title, a title company in Fort Worth with seven offices across Dallas and Fort Worth. He also has experience in criminal law on both sides, working for noted Tarrant County Defense Attorney Jeff Kearney, and after that as a prosecutor for the Travis County District Attorney's Office. Sean also worked in the State Attorney General's Office. He joins us today with a with a beat up foot, Sean. Golf carts. Golf carts can be dangerous, boys. 
Uh, Sean will be uh, joining us periodically or perhaps more often to help us analyze legal matters that arise in cases and uh, because that's his expertise, of course. He can also help us with analyzing the personalities of attorneys. In this case, Wild Bill McLean. Sean, I want to ask you first about the um, showmanship in courtrooms. Does it still exist today? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you know, whether you're a defense lawyer or a prosecutor, at the end of the day, you're trying to get the votes of those jurors in the jury box. And so you certainly, you know, want them to like you. You want to appeal to them. Um, You know, at the end of the day, you want them voting for you, even sometimes when the law may not be on your side. So you certainly want to do your best to establish a rapport with those jurors and, you know, like any great trial lawyer, you have to be very intuitive and be able to read their reactions to, you know, how, what you're saying and how things appear to be going during the trial and then, you know, adapt accordingly if need be. This incident uh, with uh, uh, in the Earl Mayfield presentation that he made, um, I left out the part where he literally uses the N-word several times in that presentation, trying to appeal to jurors. Or, or the assembly to vote in his favor that he probably knew would be accepting of that kind of presentation. That would certainly today get you disbarred, would it not? Uh, absolutely. Yeah, you, you certainly would not do that today. No one in their right mind would do that today. At one point during the Sneed trials, a brother of Al Boyce Jr. lunged at McLean, who harassed Annie Boyce, widow of Captain Boyce, during cross-examination. She said that she didn't know that Lena was to be put where there are insane people. And had she known, she would have objected, adding that had Lena been, quote, the least bit insane when this thing started, she would have been a raving maniac by now. McLean asked, but she was insane, wasn't she? Annie replied, no, she was not. She was nervous. Al was nervous. Everybody was nervous. There ought to have been more people nervous. McLean, why so concerned about Lena going to the sanitarium? Annie, I wouldn't have put a child of mine in a place where there were crazy people. McLean, you wouldn't have put Albert there? Annie, no, sir. McLean, don't you think a man running over and disgracing his mother and father and stealing another man's wife and killing that man's little children, don't you think such a man is a fit subject for the asylum or penitentiary? At that point, Lynn Boyce, the big Westerner, as the Star Telegram described him, went after McLean, dropping the knife he used to whittle during the trial, can you imagine, and jumping into the ring a la Von Erich. The defense attorney didn't try to show the defendant's innocence, but rather that the murder was just, according not to the written law of Texas, but the unwritten natural law. McLean's closing arguments in each of the three Bill Sneed trials included something of the same from the first. Quote, every time there is a home broken up, there ought to be a killing of all who assisted in it. When that's done, homes won't be broken up. He continued, they say that Captain Boyce was worse hurt over the fact that his son was charged with the theft of diamonds. This was in reference to the county DA 
at Bill Sneed's urging, charging Al Jr. of stealing Lena's jewelry when they eloped. McLean continued, Then over his son stealing another man's wife, I hope my two little boys will never steal, but if they do, I would a thousand times rather they would steal diamonds than some other man's wife, for diamonds I could replace. But all the wealth in the world could not replace the jewel of a woman's virtue once it is taken from her. This is the defense that appealed to the Deep South Victorian values of each of the 12 men who served on three juries. McLean continued, They tell us Bill Sneed killed an old, unarmed man. Al Boyce and Colonel Boyce and Henry Boyce helped to murder those two little girls a hundred times. I would rather that a yellow-bellied moccasin crawled into the bed and bit my boys than know they were disgraced for life. McLean held up a picture of the bullet-ridden body of Captain Boyce and pointed to Bill Sneed and the two Sneed girls, who, by the way, sat in their father's lap. McLean said, For every wound in his body, I can show a thousand bullet holes in the heart of John Bill Sneed. If they sent Sneed to the pen, McLean said, his, quote, deranged wife and all his property and children would fall, quote, into the despoiler's hands. Al Jr. was also disparaged by the defense attorney as a drunk. Sneed, McLean said, would rather be sent to the gallows than spend a month in the pen, quote, without the power to protect the woman whom he has tried to protect so far. McLean added this closer. I think I can see these little girls in their little white gowns saying their prayers tonight. Now we lay us down to sleep. We pray the Lord our souls to keep. But let us die before we wake rather than our voice our young lives take. Gentlemen, McLean said, let your verdict be. We, the jury, declare that the homes of this country must and shall be protected. Winning today is still everything, but the closer's hard stuff, such as, if it does not fit, you must acquit, are Little League fastballs compared to with what McLean was firing up there. Back to the Bradshaw case. On the night of the murder, George picked up a group of people and brought them back to the house on Lindenwood for a night of partying. The house guests testified at trial that before they had left the house for a bar to continue the party, Doris had played a few selections on her accordion and that her husband had recorded them on a home use unit. She wasn't rude to the guest, but when the group decided to pick up and leave, Doris didn't want to go and didn't want her husband to go either. According to testimony, Doris told her husband, quote, I'm sorry, dear, when you come home, the door will be locked. Shortly after the encounter, Margaret Cobb Turner heard the couple argue in the bedroom. Turner entered the room and saw Doris with her husband's 32 caliber pistol, which he had pulled out of the drawer of a telephone table and had it pointed at him. She said, my God, Pat, what are you doing? Put that gun down. Don't shoot your husband. At the first trial, which ended in a mistrial, Doris said her husband told Turner that his wife hasn't got the guts to pull the trigger. She said that after telling him she would lock him out of the house if he left, he grabbed her arm and began twisting it and shoved her into the bedroom and spun her across the room. He was coming at me with an insane look in his eye that I recognized, Doris said, as part of four hours on the stand. All of those experiences over the years came into my mind and I knew he'd get me this time. I told him not to come any closer, I'd shoot. But he leaned forward and his arms were out. 
He took a step toward me and I, I guess the gun went off. I was deathly afraid of him. At trial, Doris recounted a long period of mistreatment and two threats to take her life, including the day he was inducted into the army. He flew into a rage, she said, because she had attended a dinner party. During that episode, she testified he struck her and threatened her with a gun. The defense brought witnesses to corroborate her testimony. In a deposition, a former neighbor in California, Douglas A. Diebel, said Doris had come to their home one night, hysterical and with two badly blackened eyes. After she had gone, George came by the house. He had a case of beer and was intoxicated, Diebel said. During a couple's trip to Nevada, Diebel's wife testified in a deposition that Doris had come to her room crying and nervous and showed me marks on her neck. Doris began to leave and returned to San Diego, but changed her mind. When George woke up the next morning, he asked where his wife was. Mrs. Diebel said she had left and asked George, why did you do that? He replied, she bruises easily. Mrs. Diebel also testified about another trip the couples took to Laguna Beach. Doris had left a cafe where the four had been drinking, saying that she was sick. Mrs. Diebel later found Doris in bed in her hotel room with the mark of a hand across her face, the fingers, I'd say. Evelyn Margaret Walt testified for the defense as well that day, recalling a day that George had become very abusive to Doris. In one instance, he was twisting Mrs. Bradshaw's arm. Cole, her husband, had to stop him. Mr. Cole had to knock Mr. Bradshaw out. The defense also brought to the stand Major William K. Bear of the Fort Worth Army Airfield, the autopsy surgeon who testified that the bullet ranged straight downward and emerged on the right side below the bottom rib, indicating Bradshaw was, quote, crouched and starting for her. Doris stayed in the marriage, she said, because of her love for her husband. In fact, in August of 1945, Doris had filed a petition for divorce, but she withdrew it the next day, records showed. During cross-examination, prosecutors questioned Doris closely about a double indemnity clause in her husband's life insurance policy, a question that caused her to snap. Quote, I have enough to live on for the rest of my life without any insurance policies. Prosecutors also zeroed in on the variances of her story. Though at trial she said the shooting was self-defense, she told newspaper reporters shortly after the incident that it was an accident. She also initially explained to detectives that her husband had been teaching her how to operate the weapon and she was demonstrating her proficiency. Doris, quote, just didn't need poor old George around anymore, prosecutor Al Clyde charged. After her four hours on the stand and after the jury had been dismissed and a packed courthouse exited, Doris collapsed near the defense table. Quote, I hope everyone gets a good look. I guess they think I'm an iron woman. That first trial in February 1945 ended in a 6-6 dead end. The state brought her back to court in June of the same year and in a one-day retrial won a conviction after a jury deliberation of 14 minutes. McLean requested jurors assess the penalty at two years and recommended suspension. The DA agreed, telling jurors he believed the suspended sentence was the only way a jury would ever agree on a sentence. The jury obliged, 
The sentence was no consolation for Doris. No, it's not, she said. My kids are still branded with a mother that was convicted. That evening, Doris was seen at a steak restaurant for a steak dinner. Quote, I was hungry and the steak is good. It wasn't a celebration, she said, adding that she was busy getting her two daughters ready for an approaching dance recital. Later that month, Doris married a fourth time, wedding Charles Keenan of Fort Worth. In July, she was denied a claim of payment on her husband's army life insurance because, quote, you were found guilty of causing his death. Later, she was sued by an insurance company over a life insurance claim. Instead, her son, George III, was the beneficiary on both claims in a settlement that left her, quote, tickled to death. This has been another episode of Signal 51 Chronicles, brought to you by Roxo Media House. Roxo Media House.